everyone, and welcome to MLS Assist, a podcast created to give insight into Major League Soccer's on-field action. I'm Joe Lowry, and I'm joined by my co-host, Jordan Angeli. Jordan, have you recovered mentally from what we saw on the field in Seattle last night? No, I haven't. (laughs) (laughs) I am emotionally exhausted from the last two days, to be honest. They have been wild in the greatest way, but also just... I'm tired from them. I can't imagine what it feels like to be a player after these last couple days. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we've had some interesting games the last couple of nights, really. On Sunday, it was Jordan's Columbus crew beating the New England Revolution one to nothing, And then last night, as we're recording early Tuesday morning, it was Seattle, a comeback win for the Seattle Sounders over Minnesota United. Two just bonkers games, but mostly that second game, and then Jordan has that investment in the first one. I enjoyed both of these a lot, and I'm really happy that we're going to get to talk about both of them. Let's start in order, as we always do, with the Crew's one nothing win over Bruce Arena's New England Revolution. Starting on a personal level, and just from your time in Columbus, Jordan, how cool is it that the Columbus crew are advancing to MLS Cup? Right after the game, when we were on the radio, because we're we're t- now on the radio with Chris Doran, Neil Sika, and I are the TV people are now with with Chris on the radio, which is super cool um, that we get to call the game still in a different f- medium. And the whistle blew, and I just had tears. Like I couldn't stop the tears from flowing because just from my perspective, moving to this club and knowing the history of this club and what's gone on, but the future and what they have in store for it and the transformation in the last couple of years, the investment from the owners to go out and get two really big players this year, I would say, in Darlington Nagby and Lucas Celerion, and saying, hey, we'll pay for these players. We'll, we'll make a big investment. And to be a part of that and to have this really be my first full year as a TV analyst in Major League Soccer. It was just all these things swirling around. And the fact that there were fans there and they were cheering and waving these black and gold flags, it was just a lot to take in. And I just felt, and I still do feel, really, really blessed to be a part of this. It's so stinking cool. And it's cool too, Joe, because Caleb Porter, when I – First took the job, they flew us down to preseason in Tucson. And the first, like, the first time I met him, we were all out to dinner. And, like, he was like, we, we're going to, our goal is to win MLS Cup. Like, that's what we're, that's what we're talking about every single day. We're talking about it. We're talking about it. And so it's cool to see. And I think we saw that last night too, with just the mentality of the Sounders and in that what the that does to an organization that mentality has just been instilled in these players in this team in this club here that winning mentality and I think it's just such a cool to be a part of it and to see that grow and flourish I'm really happy for you first of all on a personal level I think that's I think that's awesome and hopefully our listeners have enjoyed even if they're not crew fans have enjoyed following along with that journey that you've been on this year I also think the way you described Caleb Porter is exactly how I imagine him. Every time, every time that the crew have won a game in these playoffs, I feel like I've read a quote, something along the lines of, yeah, we're not surprised. We're not, you know, we expected this. Every time the, the broadcasters make some comment about the atmosphere in the locker room being so professional and being very, you know, they're always expecting to advance. They're expecting to win. And that mentality clearly is working because what they're doing on the field is working, how they're working together as a team through adversity is working. 
And so I like that little anecdote that you brought in from Caleb Porter and that dinner down in Tucson because, yeah. uh, I don't know, that's just exactly in line with what I think of Caleb Porter all the time. Yeah, it, it is. I mean, he's a really – I think it's it was cool too, and I don't know if they showed it. I think they showed it on the broadcast. That's where I saw it. But he is this like – he is super focused on his – on winning and the team, but also like there was a really special moment that I think they showed with him and his kids uh, or, or we got to see that at least in, in the picture that we saw in the stadium. And, um, and this team has often referred to themselves as a family. And I think that that has transferred into it. Like his family values have been transferred to his team and just like the way that they trust each other and uh, help each other in that whatever atmosphere that they have created within the locker room, it really is a family. And so I think that that was a really cool moment to see both that intense coach, but also that guy whose kids are hugging him and he's like nearly crying, right? Or just so happy. (laughs) We're going to talk more about Caleb Porter's tactics and more about the Columbus crew, but let's Let's flip over to the New England Revolution here. They lose this game by one goal. It's scored by Artur in the second half of this match. I want to talk about the Revs because not only is it the last chance we're going to get to talk about them this year, but also they deserve to be talked about with how they played this season and how even they played in this game. Jordan, I thought in the first half, New England showed some really, really nice possession moments. They moved the ball with real fluidity in the back. They moved it with one, two-touch passing. They had an 11-pass sequence in the 24th minute, I just looked at my notes, and it's in the 24th minute, and it's 11 passes that the Revs start in midfield, go back into their own box, draw the crew forward, draw their press forward, and then they play through the press. Nothing comes of it. I think it's Dewan Jones who gets the ball far on the left side of the field. He tries to cross it into the box, and it gets cut out. So while nothing comes of it, it was a reminder, to me at least, of, of what this New England Revolution team can do with the ball. With Carles Hill, with Matt Polster, with uh, the two center backs, Andrew Farrell and Henry, Henry Kessler. They have a lot of players in the middle of the field that can control possession and move it forward into the attack. And they did that not just in that 24th minute moment. They did that a lot in this game, especially in the first half. Yeah, and I think that that's interesting. And one of the things that we've talked about a lot is is manipulating numbers and trying to use the ball to change the way the defense is situated. And and I think that that's one of the things that uh, you look at and you say, okay, there's there was no chance created from that or it kind of burnt out. But if if Dwan Jones plays a better ball in, or is there a good opportunity from that? And is that part of the plan for a team who wants possession to manipulate the numbers by pulling a team out of their defensive structure, stretching the lines and the passing channels a little bit more, and then being able to thread them through, especially when you have playmakers like Gustavo Bo and Carlos Hill, who, who can then be that outlet pass higher up on the field through the channels. And Bruce Arena is not building this team to be a possession juggernaut. He's not building this team to look like Bob Bradley's LAFC from last year or the year before that. That's not what's happening, but I think it it really does speak to his ability as a coach to have acquired players, number one, and this even goes back to the previous Revs era. They have players as a club who can control the ball, who can move the ball in possession, and Bruce Arena also allows them to do that, but is not married to that idea. He is willing to to play in a 4-4-2 block and transition as a primary attacking method if that's what the game calls for. He's willing if the crew are going to sit a little bit deeper in a 4-4-2 block, which they did at times in this match on Sunday, he says, okay, that's fine. We'll control the ball and we'll try to break you down. Ultimately, that didn't happen. The crew didn't give up a goal in this game. 
But I think it still is is a good indication of where the Revs are at. I mean, they have so many solid building blocks on this squad right now that can contribute on both sides of the ball in all four phases of play. Things are things are good for the Revs, better than they've been in a really long time. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And I think that you you noticed a little bit of pressure that I think just inevitably comes with the next game that I think got to a couple of players because I don't think that that was the best we've seen of Tejan Buchanan. And and that was difficult because the way that the Revs have been playing, they really rely on him and his ability to get forward. Granted, on the other end, I think that that was a really interesting matchup because a lot of the times it was a one-on-one opportunity with him and Milton Valenzuela. And Milton Valenzuela has admitted this year, like, I don't think my defending has been at its best because I'm still kind of getting back to those defensive movements from my ACL. But I thought he was one of the key players and had to have a key game because of that matchup. And it was interesting to see those two go against each other and and who was going to come out on the the better end of that matchup. And I think it was Valenzuela. I'm 100% with you. That was something that I was watching for because Tejon Buchanan had been the X factor in so many of these games for the Revs in these playoffs. His overlapping runs on the right side when Carlos Hill comes inside, Buchanan would just burst down that right side and then overpower, just dribble right by the opposing left back. But that, that didn't happen in this game. Milton Valenzuela was solid defensively. Usually I look for his his offensive contributions. But no, in this game, it was him locking down for large stretches of the game at least him locking down Tejon Buchanan, and then even shifting into the middle of the back line. I thought Jonathan Mensa and Josh Williams were so important in this game. Their ability to step to Gustavo Bo or Carles Hill when the Revs did break into the attack, or even when, when they were trying to break into the attack. Mensa would step to Bo and win the ball. Mensa would step to, to Carles Hill and win the ball. Josh Williams would step to Bo or to Hill. And I thought they limited the space of those two primary attacking playmakers really, really well almost throughout the entire match. What was really interesting and we've talked about is how Kyla's heel floats around. And this is something that if you're playing against New England, you're looking at Carlos Hill and Gustavo Bo and saying, okay, where do they really play? Because they're always popping up in, in various moments. So it's really key for the opposing team to be able to protect their, their given zone. So like you were just saying, Josh Williams, Mensa, Artur, Nagby, if those players come into your zone, you have to be willing to step to them and deny them the space where they can create. My favorite matchup all all game was Artur and Carlos Hill. Hmm. Because I felt like every time Carlos Hill was in Artur's zone, he was going nowhere. And it was getting frustrating for Carlos Hill because he's he's used to receiving the ball maybe with someone on his back and just doing like a little shimmy shake to turn in field and then be a lose the defender and be able to create and that wasn't happening even when they were not um Carlos Hill wasn't back to the the defender and he was facing up Artur did a good job of denying the passing lane at which he was anticipating Carlos Hill to want to play usually that central pass into uh, either Gustavo Bo or Buxa and I just thought it was really fun to watch how those two were kind of trying to get away from or trying to win that battle I love a lot of the defensive things that Columbus did in this game I also love what they did with the ball. They had that really solid balance between those two items. Offensively, I thought the crew, and I was reminded that the crew do so many of the fundamental possession things right. They do it right more consistently than I think a lot of other teams in MLS. I wrote down in the 26th minute, there was a, there was a possession sequence, again, didn't come to anything. 
But it was a reminder for me of how just filthy good the crew can be with the ball. So a few things happened in this sequence, and then we'll get to the goal in, in just a minute. But it's the 26th minute, and, and Darlington Nagby is about to receive the ball. He checks his shoulder, number one. He looks for the space around him. That is fundamental item number one when you're going to receive the ball. He checks his shoulder, and then he receives the ball with his feet oriented on the half turn, which means essentially his body is open, his hips are open, so that he can receive the ball and then charge forward from there. So he did two things right, you know, really, really right in that moment. Then he gets the ball to Zellerayan, which is pretty much the the job of Darlington Nagby and almost every other player in the attack. <laughs> so I would argue that's three things right. The shoulder check, the half turn, and playing the playmaker. That's number three. Then it was the positioning of the players in front of goal or, or in the front line. So the crew at this point have the ball at Zellerayan's foot on the right side of the attack. So you've got Luis Diaz and Harrison Offal as the two primary outlets on that right side, right back and right winger. Diaz tucks inside, and when he does that, he pins the Revs left back, Dewan Jones, inside. Because Jones has to respect him, otherwise Diaz is going to be open because the center backs are busy dealing with someone else. So Diaz pins Dewan Jones inside just long enough for Offal to make a run into the box, for Zellerayan to play him into the box, and Jones is fast. He ends up recovering in that moment. But man, the pin from Diaz is perfect. The pass from Zellerayan is really good. Nagby's decision-making and, and process as he receives the ball and then as he passes the ball. All of the elements of this were, were spot on leading up to that, that final move. But the crew's ability in possession is so solid. And again, we see that on the goal later on in the second half of this game. Everyone on the field for them is so technical, is so skilled offensively. And they can create things like the goal in the 59th minute because they all have that really above average offensive skill set. And I think the goal, are we going to go straight into that? If you're ready. Yeah. One of the things that I thought was interesting on the goal is because of where the ball had come from the set piece, it was then being cleared out and it looked as if the crew were going to lose possession and have to chase back. And when Lucas Celerion gets on the ball immediately, if you watch the uh, longer replay, you'll see Jonathan Mensa tracking back to get back to a center spot back spot. And then he sees that Lucas is on it. He's like, Nope, abort <laughs> mission going back to the, to the box. <laughs> I love that. I love that. I mean, you you should get in the box if Lucas Zellerayan is on the ball in crossing distance, I think. I'm not the biggest fan of crosses, but if, if anybody's going to cross the ball, that's a really, really good option with Zellerayan's left foot. Let's talk about the goal. It's the 59th minute. It's Artur who eventually gets the ball in the back of the net. Zellerayan crosses the ball from the far side. It's after the crew have, have had a set piece and they win the ball back, like you just explained. Zellerayan gets on the ball and he crosses it in from the left side into Jonathan Mensa on the far side of the goal. Mensa then just one touches it. This is a center back, by the way. Mensa then one touches the ball into Artur, who one touch finishes it into the bottom right near post of the goal. I mean, a really, really clean finish, a really clean one touch pass from Mensa and a great cross from Zellerayan, who had Carles Hill all over him. Mm -hmm. What was interesting about that is the the foot choice that Artur decided to play the ball with. Yeah. Because the ball is coming back from Mensa, and Artur is actually a little bit outside the goal. So you would think that it would make sense to maybe play it with your right foot and try to bend it in that, that near post corner. But he goes with his left foot, and he put, like, his swing is so choppy that it puts this interesting spin on it. So it just spins away from the fingertips of Matt Turner. And I think initially when I saw it, it looked like the simplest shot that the crew had taken all day like it was just a pass into the back of the net which it was but it was also there was so much texture on that pass that made it 
brilliant. And I think that, thank goodness we have these, these replays that can show us those little, little details because it really was a phenomenal goal. And, um, I think just the combination of players that stepped up in that moment was fun to see for the Columbus crew because yes, it is going to be Lucas Celerion in the mix with a lot of those, but it doesn't always have to be Jassy's artist, right? Or Pedro Santos, the other players. It can be your center back and one of your holding mids. Anytime a center back gets an assist is a good day in my book, honestly. Gotta love it. Gotta love it. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service any time. Sounds like a real game changer, if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep. You heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX's Welcome to Wrexham premieres May 2nd on FX. Stream on Hulu. Jordan, are you ready to move on to the second conference yeah. final? We just went over the Eastern Conference final with the crew advancing to MLS Cup. Now we have Seattle versus Minnesota. Seattle's 3-2 comeback win at Lumen Field. I've been learning. At Lumen Field in Seattle. Jordan, where do we even want to start in this game? I mean, where do we, where do we go? That's a great question. Um, I just started sweating because I know what's coming. And um, I hope John Strong got a good cup of tea after the last 15 minutes of that one. Because, man, he was going hard. And it needed it. It needed it. But I want to rewind and just talk about last time we talked about Minnesota, we talked about their defensive structure and how they almost shifted into when they high pressed, it was a 3-4-3. Do you remember talking about that Mm -hmm. against Sporting Kansas City? Well, they would still high press. And when they were trying to get, I would say it wasn't a high press as a team unit. It was the front three in Lud, Reynoso, and Molino going to press Seattle higher up the field. Usually those three, sometimes those two, not Molino and just Reynoso and Lud. And then everybody else, knowing Seattle, everybody else was so disconnected, maybe 40 yards in between the lines, because they knew if Seattle beat that line of pressure, if they allowed space in behind, then they were going to be beat. And I think what Minnesota did really well is, I would say probably for 65 minutes, is not allow Seattle or limit the amount of times where Seattle was running running in these even matchups against the back line or even trying to get in behind. They were always flooding numbers behind the ball and making sure that Jordan Morris and Nico Ladero didn't have those spaces to run into. So I thought that was really an interesting twist to the defensive structure for Minnesota. 
I want to carry that thought a little bit further because one thing I noticed in this game, especially in the first half, was Nico Lodero getting on the ball and finding Jordan Morris. But I want to clarify where where it was happening. Okay, so if, yeah. if I'm understanding what you said correctly, Seattle would, would get the ball forward, but they wouldn't be able to run into these giant gaps of open space. They wouldn't have all this time to run downhill vertically directly, which yes. we know the Sounders love to do. Minnesota put numbers back because they didn't want to have to deal with Seattle running at them, mm-hmm. right? But I think they had to give something up in order to do that. And for me, at least what I noticed was they gave up direct pressure on the ball when they were back in their defensive block, or at least when their their midfield line and defensive line were back in their own half. They they gave up pressuring Ladero in possession when, when the Seattle was in possession, and, and that caused them real issues. There were four times that I noted at least in the first half or even in a section of the first half, where Ladero would pick up the ball in front of or next to Minnesota's double pivot or somewhere in front of their midfield line. It was Ladero getting on the ball in possession, him finding good spots and then playing it into Jordan Morris, playing him in behind the back line or playing him in front of the back line. It happened over and over and over again, and I couldn't figure out why. I didn't know why. But I think it's exactly what you said, Jordan. It's because Minnesota was so concerned with stopping those transition attacks, they put numbers back. But then when you're back, it's hard to find the balance of, of staying back and staying solid, but also needing to step to a playmaker, needing to step forward and pressure the opposition. That's a really interesting balance to try to find. And honestly, I don't think Minnesota United did that super well. Yeah, I think that they did a better job of that when they had, like if there was a transition moment in which that's where Seattle's going to hurt you, right? And it it is that transition from the defensive third into Ladero, then cross the field to Jordan Morris, which is a something that we see over and over again, a pattern for the Seattle Sounders. But this time with the ball in in front of the back line, and he's, it was usually Morris and Rui Diaz against four players, maybe even five with one of the holding midfielders. You're going to bet on your players in those situations if you're Minnesota. But at the same time, you're right. It, the more you give Ladero the ball, the more confident he gets, the more he can figure out which passes are working, which passes aren't working. And then eventually he's going he's gonna to figure it out. And that did happen, maybe less from open play uh, and more on set pieces. And that's <laughs> another trend for Minnesota United. I think... This game was so appealing to me and so fun to me going into it because on one side we have Ladero, on the other side we have Emmanuel Reynoso and we have Kevin Molino. Three yeah. of the best playmakers right now in Major League Soccer. And they, they all delivered, but in some different ways. Reynoso right. and Molino, I don't think really shined in the first half in open play, but that didn't end up mattering. It didn't matter that Joao Paulo and, and Christian Roldan really did a good job, I think, dealing with Reynoso, especially in the first half. It didn't matter because Reynoso just said, okay, that's fine. I'm not going to contribute in open play. I'll serve up some set pieces for you guys. So goal number one, we're just going to get into it. We've got five okay. goals to get through. Goal also, number can one. can I just say, these two teams and the attacking abilities they had, would you guess that it was going to be four set piece goals that we would be talking about? No. Out of the possible of five? <laughs> no. no, not at all, right? I would have thought these guys are going to carve things up in open play. But uh, I guess so that's funny. not how the soccer ball bounces sometimes. It's <laughs> it's the first goal from, from Minnesota United in the 29th minute. It's Emmanuel Reynoso taking a free kick. He steps up to take it from just outside the box and nails it with his left foot, beating Stefan Fry to put Minnesota United up one to nothing. The free kick is beautiful. I mean, it bends really nicely into the outside part of the netting, or the inside, outside. Nah, I'm just going to move on. He scores. He scores the goal. It's great. Goals are good. But uh, I saw some outcry on Twitter about a certain defensive strategy from the Seattle Sounders. Jordan, did you see something about their wall? 
No, I didn't notice. I I didn't. I wasn't paying attention to the wall. I was looking at Reynoso's shot, and I thought it actually went between two heads of players on the wall. Is that what you're going to? Yeah, basically. So I saw in the wall, and I saw people talk about this on Twitter. Shane O'Neill and Yaimar Gonzalez were in the middle of Seattle's four-man wall on this goal, and on the actual free kick, the middle of that wall, those two center backs don't jump. They don't jump up to try to to block the shot from Reynoso, and the ball goes in that area. It might have gone between heads. It might have not hit them at all. But a lot of people on Twitter especially were saying, man, you got to jump. If you're in the middle of that wall, you have to jump and try mm. to block it. I think Michael Parkhurst tweeted something about that. So Ooh. I don't know if the goal would have gone in, gone in, if Yamar Gomez and Shane O'Neill would have jumped. But man, that could have put an interesting twist on this game. Oh, absolutely. And you really just don't want Michael Parkhurst tweeting at you and being disappointed <laughs> in your wall structure. I mean, I wouldn't want to be there. Yeah, that feels like a, a disappointed parent. Um, just, man, you, you could have done better on that one, guys. But even if if they jumped, I don't know. Maybe they jump. It, it seemed it, it could have changed it, but also it it could have been just the placement of Reynoso to go thread the seam between the players, which is ridiculous that you could even do that type of thing. And it shows off the skill of Reynoso if you don't see that enough when he has the ball at his feet to say, okay, I'm going to set this ball down and put it right between these players' heads and hit off the post before it goes in. Like there's so much perfection in this shot that even if it does hit the post, there's on-crashing players who can continue uh, trying to get the rebound. So there's so many good things about the shot that I think we're just going to give it to Reynoso because they lost. So we'll give him the benefit of the doubt. I'm with you. I like that, okay. Jordan. That's a good strategy. <laughs> Goal number two from Minnesota United. They're up one to nothing. Then we move into the second half. It's the 67th minute. Reynoso, again, is on the ball on a set piece. He's on the left side of the attack after Kevin Molino drew a foul from, I believe, Alex Roldan out on the left side. So it's Molino, who's really dangerous, trying to cut in on his right foot from the left side. Roldan brings him down. Reynoso steps up to take the free kick, and he does. He bends it in with his left foot into the box. Debassi gets his head on it and scores. So Minnesota United, at this point in the game, are up 2 to nothing. Reynoso and Molino are contributing to things, even if it's not in their normal possession-y kind of way. And then things start to change, Jordan. The tides change, and Seattle starts to score and score and score again later on in the second half. Okay, before we get to the goals, I do want to... I wrote a question down for you, and... In the 69th minute, there was a slew of subs. It was one for Minnesota United. It was Ethan Finley off for Kai Kamara in. And for Seattle, it was Leardom and Smith in, outside backs. A little bit more, I would say, uh, savviness about them. Is that the right word to say? Yeah, Savviness about them. So those three subs happen. Do you think for Minnesota, at this point of the game, you're up by two goals? Do you think bringing Kai Kamara in is the right choice? Oh, man. I don't know. I don't know because it depends on how you want to approach this. If you're looking for an outlet who can body up a center back and control the ball and get Minnesota United forward, great. If you're looking for a number nine who can contribute defensively and run and cover ground at the top of a block, probably not the right move. And as it turns out, that really should have been what Minnesota United was looking for more than an outlet because they really didn't try to control the ball or even to get forward in possession after going 2-0 up. Right, which I think was taken away from one of their strengths, is the way that those front four work together, uh, the two wingers 
in Finley and Molino, and then with Lud up top and Reynoso underneath, those four really play off each other. And they know how to get into the spaces to help support when the ball does get to Lud, and he is holding it up as a traditional number nine and trying to be that outlet player. He's more mobile. I think Ethan Finley is more comfortable defending on the wing because that's what he's been doing. And then Ludd hasn't been playing there. You throw him on the wing. Now his defensive responsibilities change and he's put in a position where he hasn't been playing very often as of late. And you put in Kai Kamara, who, yes, he could be a good target forward. But what was happening there, playing all these balls to him and to his head and he's flicking them on. Well, there's no one behind you. Yeah. To flick them onto. So the back line just drops, wins the ball, and then Seattle's coming back at it, at you. So I just, I don't think for Minnesota it was the right call because they lost that fluidity of when they did win the ball, numbers coming to help support and get the ball off of Kai Kamara because Lud and Reynoso, I feel like those two really combine well together. And that could have been the outlet they needed to bypass that, um, or be that outlet to then get in beyond, behind Seattle. But then the defensive responsibilities, I think you just go, and, and Kai Kamara's a nine and doesn't like traditionally to defend very much. And you know, if you're winning two to nothing, you're going to be defending a lot. I just, I don't agree with it. I think it really changed the game. Yeah. And I think you're right. Honestly, I can see, I can see why Adrian Heath might have made that move. There is some logic yeah, in it that I me can too, see. For but sure. especially knowing what we know now. Yeah, and and realizing how that game was going to go down with Seattle controlling so much of the ball and Minnesota really not being able to use Kai Kamara's strengths effectively as they tried to move forward occasionally, I think the the move is a lot harder to swallow now. Yeah, and it it's hard too because the substitutions for the two outside backs come at the same time, so you also lose Finley and his ability and his pace to help defensively. And I thought Finley all all game long did a really good job of being that second defender. And either when his outside back slowed the play down, he would come and scoop the ball up or then deny the next pass that was going centrally to help Seattle create. He would kind of pick that ball up. So I I think it was just kind of a it hit in a couple of different ways that I don't think you could have anticipated maybe is kind of what you're saying. But I just don't I think they if they could have, they should have just stayed for a little yeah. bit longer. <laughs> You're not wrong. You're definitely not wrong about that. I think there were some real downsides to that move. Yeah. I like how you pointed out the fullbacks coming on for Seattle because for their first goal in the 75th minute, it's Kelvin Leerdam who plays the ball in from the right side. He's come on for Alex Roldan, and he plays the ball into Rui Diaz, who's come off the line a little bit, gets on the ball, turns really well, or just controls the ball really well, shoots, has that shot deflected. But Will Bruin, who's come on a little bit earlier in this game, Will Bruin is there in the box and finishes to have the deficit. So at this point, it's 2-1. to one. Minnesota is still up, but Seattle has scored a goal. The momentum is starting to shift. And then there's a lot more time in the second half that passes. There's, there's more than 10 minutes that passes, and I'm thinking, okay, this one's done. It's over, Minnesota. Congratulations. This is a good win for you guys. Especially with Jordan Morris pinging it off the, the post. Yeah, exactly. You, know, you kind of just felt like it was not going to go in Seattle's way, even though they were dominating in all forms of the word and then things change things well I guess <laughs> things continue to change at that point fast forwarding to the 89th minute it's a corner kick and it's Nico Ladero who takes the corner and the ball works its way over after that corner so Ladero plays it into the box the ball works its way over to Rui Diaz at the back post and he sneaks it past Dane St. Clair to tie things up at two to two 
it's a great goal. It's a great finish. It's a nice corner kick from Nico Ladero. But I saw, again, to reference Twitter, I saw some discussion on Twitter, Jordan, between you and Ben Wright, and maybe there was another person or two in that thread. I don't know. But I saw you and Ben specifically. Do you want to walk us through the defensive marking here, Jordan? Yeah, so Minnesota's playing. There's a couple of things that are, are talked about a lot on corner kicks is how you're going to set up structurally. Are you going to be uh, in a man-to-man structure? Are you going to be in a half zone, half man structure? Or are you just going to be a full zone? Minnesota decides to go with this half zone, half man-to-man marking. And so the zone is four players kind of arced from the top of the six to around to the back of the six. And so that front player is tucked in a little bit more to protect that front space. And then every all the three players behind him are almost lined up right along the six-yard box. And then the man-to-man structure comes. So you had just mentioned Rui Diaz all alone back post. Well, this is why. Are you thinking Rui Diaz is going to be a big threat aerially on corner kicks? No, he's not very tall. He can he can no. jump, but he's not a giant. Yeah. So you're not going to man-to-man mark him. You're going to say if he goes into one of the zones, the zonal markers are going to take care of that ball, and they're going to say, everything in my space I'm going to clear. So the players that were man-to-man marked, Will Bruin, uh, Yamar, Shane O'Neill, one more, I think Svensson, and... What happens if the ball goes into your zone, you have to win it. Even if it's a man-to-man marker comes into your zone, you are responsible for your zone. You have to win the ball. And I think that that's where it gets really tricky because there are so many players that are really good at coming right in front of the zonal markers with their runs to get a little touch on the ball to then throw the zone off. And I think that's what happened is that near post run in Seattle targets that near post a lot on their, their corner kicks. And... The ball goes into the near post. It's a little flick by Svensson, enough to just continue the ball on. And then there's no one marking Rui Diaz because he's not in anybody's zone. He's beyond the zones. He's back. So then by the time you get pressure to him, it's too late. And then you talk about, well, should you play players on the post? Like there's so many different things because I think the this goal and the next goal maybe would have been slightly affected if there were players on the post. So that's kind of the discussion about man and zone marking. But if Rui Diaz is floating back there, you're just trusting that if the ball gets all the way back there, that last player in the zone can go and get to the ball quick enough to deny the shot. And it was too slow. After he scores Minnesota's second goal, DeBassi has some defensive issues on Seattle's last two goals. It's it's DeBassi who's the, the furthest zone away from Ladero. And, and Rui Diaz kind of starts in his zone, and then Rui Diaz is very smart to back away. And then at that point, Debassi, once Rui Diaz is on the ball, Debassi can't get back to him to close him down. And then there are more defensive issues from Debassi on Seattle's final goal. Well, really quick, you mentioned the movement of Rui Diaz, but also I think he's trying to get away from Debassi, but he's also doing what you're supposed to do as that attacker is because you're targeting the near post, whereas if the ball's flicked, the odds of it going on frame are pretty high, but the second place it could go is straight across the goal. And so you cannot let the ball get out on the far side. So you're almost like a backstop. You're saying it's not going past the far post. I'm keeping everything in. I'm going to shoot or cross the ball back into the mix. And so he does exactly what is asked of that position offensively as well. Second half stoppage time. Another corner kick. It's Nico Ladero again on the ball who takes it, Gustav Svensson gets into the box, steps up, jumps up to meet the ball over Devasi, and heads it in. Seattle, at this point, are up 3-2. to two. The game ends a minute, two minutes later, and the Sounders have won, advancing to their fourth MLS Cup in the last 
five years. What a ridiculous game. What a ridiculous oh series of minutes at the end of this game. Minnesota United came so close. They could not finish this one out. And Seattle are on to play the Columbus crew on Saturday. And what's interesting, too, about what you just noted is when you're when I've ever played in a zone, I've always had the same zonal responsibilities. So you mirror it on each side. But what you're just saying is Debassi was the far zone on the first goal against and he was the near zone on the second goal against so think about all those different defensive responsibilities that you have to have in those two different zones and that might be one of the reasons why he struggled on that second one is that's not as natural for him as the other zone so just a little note there but why zonal marking can be or zonal defending on corner kicks can also be a little bit tricky Set pieces are complicated, man. There's so many different pieces that goes into this. (laughs) Teams spend a lot of time going over this stuff. And sometimes they either can't execute defensively or they've developed ways to attack and score goals offensively. And we saw both of those different pieces in this game. A really, I mean, you could teach a whole set piece seminar on just the corner kicks and free kicks that happened in this game. Yeah. Also, I think we just have to note how calm Brian Schmetzer is. Even when his team is losing. I mean, his notepad is out a lot less in the end of the game. But he's just like, he's not getting high and low. His team misses a chance and he's just like, it is what it is. I just can't imagine that. Cool, calm, and collected. Right? I just think that was wild. So Yeah, I would not have been chill. I would have been <laughs> I would have been pacing a lot. I would have been sweating a decent amount, probably. Not unlike yeah. not unlike John Strong and, and Stu in the in the booth, I assume. They were oh probably gosh. sweating a little bit at the end of this game. Yes. Jordan, yes. we have talked over both of these conference finals, Eastern Conference, Western Conference. There is one game left in this MLS season. It is on Saturday, again between Seattle and the Columbus crew. It will be held in Columbus. Jordan will be at the stadium, safely calling that game on the radio in Columbus. I'm excited for you, Jordan. I'm excited for when we get to talk about that game. Until then, thanks for talking soccer with me. Yeah, that's fun. This has been so fun, Joe. And we've made it through our almost our first MLS season. Crazy. We it's weird. It's almost been though. a whole year. It's almost been right? a whole year. We get to talk about a final. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. Thanks for everything. And um, here's the last one of the year, the last game. Here's to the last game. Listeners, thank you for listening, and we will be back again with another episode after that last game.